Hey, Lacey Kemp, how are you today? Oh man, I couldn't be better, James. I can hear the enthusiasm. Oh my goodness. Not only is it the first day of fall, but it's like the 900th month of COVID and there's wildfires blanketing the land. We're doomed. But the good news is this podcast is freaking epic. I am so stoked to talk to Dan, who is one of the two founders slash owners of Kona. Yeah, I think uh, this should be a really fun listen for people that are longtime Kona fans or people that are just curious about the company. Um, Dan is like a a ray of sunshine and personality and has really, I think, helped dictate the the fun, funky side of Kona for, for the better part of what year are we on now? Uh, 20, 32 years. Wow. Amazing. 32 years. That's amazing. Yeah. yeah. I feel like we had a great talk. We talked about the founding of the company, how it was founded over music, which is very cool. His ethos in the company and, and also where he is now. We also talk about what his all-time favorite Kona bike is, and I'm going to let people find that out by listening, but it's not what you might think, and I'm pretty excited about it. You couldn't imagine a nicer dude. Really, it was just, it was amazing. And I, rather than just use a bunch of air, which is in short supply because there's smoke everywhere right now to talk about how great it is, I think we should just let people dive right in and give it a listen. Yeah, enjoy Dan and his, his fun storytelling. It should be a good one. I'm a photographer and writer and filmmaker, and I don't work where I live. So I'm, I'm on the road two to three weeks out of every month. And it's been really oh. nice to be home for four or five months with the family. <laughs> I'm no like spoiled kidding, now. No I'm kidding. like, oh man, how, how much of this can I keep doing remotely? Well, that's and, an uh, interesting topic because we're finding that with the, 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 the people who work for Kona as well. Yeah. Uh, we've, lear we've learned to, and, and we're doing a great job working remotely and yeah. people are reluctant to to come back. I I was back on the mainland for a few weeks and uh, at the warehouse trying to, to to try to get people to slowly try to reintegrate. You know, everything's safe yeah. there. Everybody's done a great job, but people are to be to be honest. It seems to be a bit more efficient what we do anyway. And we normally will have a, 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 a kind of a new model introduction and a sales meetings. We do them in Europe. We do them in Canada. We do them in USA. We did them uh, remotely, virtually, and it was brilliant. And it was so efficient. <laughs> yeah. It, so it must quickly. save money, too, from yeah. not having to travel around and show everything. Oh, yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, I'm sure we'll see that towards the end of the year. But I was just thinking more of, of how, how efficient it was. Like Ian, we would just kind of wear him down. He, we, we, he would do a presentation and then we'd say, uh, jump on a plane and, you know, go to wherever, you know, go to France or, or wherever we want to hold it. And then he'd have to do it again. And, and so I yeah. think that some of the stuff that we're learning, I think, is, gonna, is going to carry forward as we, as we go into the, the, the new era anyway. It's been interesting to see, too. So I, prior to my freelancing, I was, I was a journalist. And I got your we, bio right in front of me, James. I got your you bio. You do. I should be interviewing <laughs> you. You're oh, the, you've had a more interesting uh, career than me. I don't think that's true at all. Um, but I, uh, you know, it was interesting to, at least with the people that, that I worked with or that I managed, let them work from home. And I did notice that, you know, a lot of the time, especially creating digital media, people did better work from home because 
-hmm. in the time it takes them to get to the office and get a coffee. And then there's the distractions of all your friends in the office and there's like a snack bar. Like by the time you cut all that out and they're just at home, like they just want to get the work done and get on with their day. They would actually like stuff that would take them all day to do. They'd be done by noon. Well, Um, the problem is, is you start losing the community part of it, which is true. a a huge part of, of, of Kona anyway. Because you Absolutely. have a, a, a wide variety of people who have a basic passion for bikes, and and they're coming from all perspectives. And yeah, I mean, you can do it by Skype, of course, and you, know, you can do it by chat. But there is something about that coffee machine, or going out and into the pump track in the back, you know. Or I mean, we had like I can't even. We used to try to put a limit on the number of dogs we had in that place at a time. It didn't work. You know, dogs everywhere. So there's all of there's all of that. You know, that really I I think kind of solidifies the the purpose yeah, what we're doing. Yeah, have a cultural um, like a corporate culture on a Slack chat room or something. That that is very true. It, it, at Kona USA, especially, we have uh, almost every aspect of the of the company there. We have the, the design engineers, the industrial engineers, we have communications people, we have salespeople, we have, it's, so it's, it's, it's pretty integrated and, and people get to see what everybody else is doing, which I think is, is pretty cool that, that we're at that size that we can actually have that. Yeah. I think it gives people in other departments like as they as they see it, it gives them more of a sense of ownership over everything that's happening, and a sense of inclusion, which Absolutely. I think is important. So you don't feel like you're just a cog or or just an employee or a part of like a, you know, a community. And I do I agree. I think that's important, especially with a brand you know like Kona that has so much personality behind it and is so much personality driven. Mm-hmm. Let's actually lean into that a little bit. So, when you guys started Kona, did you have a vision for what the brand was going to be? <laughs> we just saw the bikes that were available and we thought we could do a better job with our terrain. We were up in Vancouver and the mountains, the Pacific Coast Mountains are very young. I think they're one of the youngest mountain ranges on the continent. So the bikes were coming out of uh, the Marin area. We, we used to call their trails baby bum smooth, nice smooth trails. And then you come up into the Pacific Coast Mountains. And they're quite vertical, incredibly rocky, massive trees and stones, and and the the big uh, parallel top tube concept. It, it didn't work so well. We were running hardtails with rigid forks, so you're getting bounced around. And when you come over that thing, so the sloping top tube made a, a whole lot of sense for us. So that was basically where we started. It was like, hey, for our type of riding, this is a better bike. And that's that was the beginning of of the brand. Really, it was like this this one rides nicer for us, and then other people saw that, and then of course then it started to spread. And in fact, that was pretty much the thing that got us off, got us going because Jake and I had no money. We just had yeah. some ideas, and at that point, Joe Murray was really. Uh, he loved Vancouver, thought it was a groovy town, and it was like, hey, let's let's do something together. And as soon as people heard that Joe Murray was involved, suddenly, you know, suddenly we had people coming from Germany and England and you know, all over the world saying, Hey, we want in. So so wow. suddenly we had we had all this 
potential orders. And then we, we kind of sheepishly went over to Asia and said, hi, can, can we build these bikes? And, and as a result, the, our, our partners in Asia, and some of them we've been dealing with since the very beginning, uh, kind of took care of us. Because we were young wow. and we we had no money, so they kind of uh, <laughs> let us gave us a little bit of time to pay and all of that because we had all these orders behind us that were going to bigger bigger companies. So, so yeah, I, the timing was great. Of course, yeah. the mountain bike boom was just happening, and and it was a fairly simple product at that point. You know, compared to the stuff that Ian's working with now. And those right. engineers and, and trying to design yeah. those bikes and trying to make them perfect. You know, we were basically taking some steel and, and welding it up and putting on whatever components you could find. So it was, it was pretty straightforward and simple. But we knew that our, cult, our culture was definitely going to be based uh, in the Pacific Northwest or, as the Canadians would call it, I guess, the Pacific Southwest. But that little corridor, the it was was kind of where we lived and pretty much where the bulk of our ideas and innovations came from and it was at that time again it was a simpler time but there it was a bit of a hotbed there were quite a, a number of companies that sprang up in and around that time where we were in Vancouver so there was kind of a creative energy happening that uh, that was fun but it's that's also nostalgia yeah. You know, now it's uh, it's it's more comp it's more complex and you know a lot more uh, fun to ride. A lot of those bikes are are amazing compared to you know just an old clankety rigid rigid bike. So I think <laughs> the stuff the stuff that's coming out now is will certainly catch people and keep them more interested in the sport. Well, you even fall a couple even the rigid bikes now are are a lot smoother to ride than the bikes back like the clunkers and stuff from back then. I mean, you know, I think if you ride like a unit now and then go and ride like you know whatever your first model like fully rigid steel bike was i bet i bet there there have been so many advances taken just in geometry and like weight distribution that, that it's probably a smoother ride yeah it's it's but the mountain bike's a technological brakes? marvel at this point how about yeah. real brakes <laughs> no brakes that work <laughs> I mean, that, yeah that, that is an innovation that is one of the greatest innovations in cycling in my opinion was the hydro was a hydraulic or a cable activated disc brake you don't yeah. you, you don't have to sweat it you know you know so yeah so yeah the uh, there is a bit of a nostalgia with that i remember when the unit came about because at that point it was almost a, an anti-technology statement there was a whole group of people within the company and and elsewhere of course that you know the bikes were getting more complex and and these people would start going on these in these races on just a real simple single speed or just a simple bike and it was kind of a, a a reaction to the the quick changing technology. I think I have a unit, and I, I love the simplicity of it. Just because I'm a person, you know, I, I get bogged. Like I'll get an idea in my head, like oh, two more pounds of pressure here, or like a little less rebound there. Like, and I get lost. It's it can become maddening sometimes, and sometimes it's easier to just <laughs> jump on it and just just hammer, just just go. Like there's nothing you can adjust. Like it's all you, man. And I, I appreciate that simplicity a lot sometimes. How has the, so obviously the bikes have changed a lot and the culture has changed a lot, but what would you say has given Kona the ability to persevere? There've been so many companies that have come and gone in mountain biking, but you guys have always kind of, you stayed strong, but you've also kind of stayed 
and you're not a small company, but you're you're not, you know, a behemoth. Like how have you managed to stay true to that that those core values and and how would you say the company is positioned now? Like what is what is your value add to mountain biking as a whole now as opposed to to then? Well, number one, it's not just mountain biking. I think that that was a decision we made quite a few years ago. We were everyone say Kona mountain bikes, Kona mountain bikes, and we realized that we're a bike company, and mm-hmm. so we do a, a, quite a quite a bit of mountain bikes. But we we also do a lot in in gravel. We do we're, we're doing a lot in in e bikes. We're doing a lot in we did a lot of cyclocross bikes. So we kind of broadened it into a, more of a bike company. And I'm sure you've looked at the website. It's we got oh, yeah. youth bikes. We got we got the whole bit. And I, I should say the Sutra is actually the, my favorite bike. So, so I didn't mean bike. to. Fantastic I, I, it's incredible. No, yeah. Well, that's uh, both Jake and I were uh, tourists back before there were mountain bikes. We tour all over Europe and North America on our bikes. So, so yeah, that's a that's something that we believe in. I think the reason we were able to persevere through all of this one number one we're stubborn. Jake and I are both pretty stubborn people, and, and hardworking and all of that jazz. But beyond that, we, we fashioned the company in a way that it, it really was a, centered around the lifestyle. So when we would go into a model year, for instance, a lot of our competitors would go, we're going to do this, we're going to do that. Our expectations were very, very humble and small. It was like, okay, if we grow this little bit, everybody can get a raise this year. Everybody can have some time off. Maybe we can develop a, a couple more models. And that's pretty much how we just went through it year after year after year. It's just we never, we were, we were never greedy. We were never interested in growing a big corporation. We had a, a group of people that we loved working with. And I yeah. think that's one of the keys to being able to continue to do it because it was fun. It never got to a point where it was a burden or a grunt or anything like that. You've never been tempted to sell. I'm sure you've nope. had offers. Oh yeah, yeah. Now, do you still ride a lot? Oh yeah. What's your What's your current favorite bike? Oh, I can tell you what I'm doing over. I've been over here. I got stuck over here. I'll tell you just a little bit. It's probably boring, but I was over um, in the late November or early December. Came over to Maui, went to visit my daughter in New Zealand, came back, and then the shit hit the fan. So my girlfriend and I have been over here pretty much for six months. I went back just for a short period of time. And in my garage, I've got, I think, 13 bikes. Because I, I, I keep bikes here for customers or whoever wants to come to Maui. And I've got five bikes that I've, I've been rotating and riding one uh, each every week. I have a, okay. a, Humu, a, tit- a titanium Humu Cruiser which is like what you're talking about, a simple bike. I've got a, a Rovan RB DL, which was a, just kind of a gravel bike. I've got an old-fashioned road bike. Um, I've got an uh, e-bike. So I, and I just got a basic cruiser you know, for shopping and whatnot. Uh, we've had some mountain bikes over here, but really there's only the pine forest up in Makawoo. There's, there's not a whole lot of trail riding over here. And I think it has a lot to do with the fact that there's not people out to maintain them because it's pretty jungly. You have to maintain a trail to keep it going here. So everybody rides up. We've had some processes over here. And uh, 
yeah, so I, mean, I love riding. I, I try to get out at least five times a week to, to ride, it just, just for my head anyway. And it's, kind of, yeah. it's been kind of a fun challenge to stay on each, each bike every week and vary <laughs> the rides, you know, see how far I can go on that humu into the headwind. And then, you know, maybe do the West Maui loop on an e-bike just to see how much battery life there is. So I'm doing a little research and development too. As the e-bike thing is, is interesting, so I, I'm very passionate. I used to be read my bio. I'm very passionate about the environment, um, and I yes, love the potential that e-bikes bring. What do you? What are your thoughts on them? I know a lot of bike companies now are making them because they feel like they have to. But what is your thought on them, and what is Kona's role in the e-bike market? Well, I, the thought. I mean, they're they're amazing, and it's going to bring an incredible number of people into the sport. It doesn't take away from the sport in the least. An example. Uh, West Maui Loop. I don't know if you know Maui at all. It's a, considered to be one of the, the, the cool rides in North America. Extremely okay. challenging. You get on that backside of the, the island and it's just, you know, waterfalls and gullies and you're up and down. And the average person cannot, there's no way they can ride that. If you had an e-bike, you could. You, you can. You can ride it. I've, I've taken my girlfriend. She's more of a runner, a yoga type of person. And I've taken her on the, back on West Maui, and she's had a blast. You see things that you would not see. You could jump in your car and drive it, but that's horrible. So yeah. that type of thing. Another one that Larry Ellison owns, the island of Lanai. And Lanai doesn't have m much in the way of roads at all. And he's setting up an adventure company over there <laughs> to explore the island of Lanai. And we're working with them. And it's just e-mountain bikes because these people come over Maybe it's wintertime. Uh, maybe you're not super fit. The, these are old volcanoes, so they're pretty, pretty vertical. So you, you get on this bike and you're pedaling and, you know, suddenly you can see the backcountry of Lanai. So, I mean, the opportunities for people to enjoy the sport are, are, yeah, are, are vast. So I, we're 100% behind it. We tried to do it 12 years ago. We started with e-bikes oh, wow. because... And at that point, the, the systems just weren't there. It turned out to be a bit of a headache for us. So we backed off and we waited until we, we felt there was a, a reliable motor and battery system. So we've seen it in Europe. I, I spent a lot of time in Europe and we, we've watched the whole sport grow as a result in, in Europe. And it's just inevitable that it will grow to a, a similar proportion here in North America. I think over there in terms of dollars it's roughly half of the market is is now into the e-bike part of it so that that includes everything it's not yet not just mountain bikes it's uh, if you go into a city like paris i live part-time in paris and all the deliveries even ups the ups guy is on a bike uh, fedex is on a bike all the all the couriers are on bikes, but they're all on e-bikes the uh the bike share the bike share system is electric so yeah, it's we we didn't get into it because we had to. We got into it because we yeah. thought it was brilliant. Yeah, you know it's interesting. I'm like I said, I'm on Cape Cod, which is kind of a, a tourist hotspot, and it, there you do see a ton of, especially older folks on. They're they're basically like e-bike fat bikes ripping around, and the <laughs> amount of access that it gives to people who maybe wouldn't normally have that level of mobility. I think is really cool, especially, you know, it is a cars are bad for the environment, but B, 
it's a lot more fun to ride an e-bike into town to get a coffee or just to cruise around than it is to like get in your car and go for a drive. So I think in a lot of ways they're they're helping to get people outside who may not normally be able to engage with it the same way. And I think that's incredibly valuable, both from a health standpoint, um, and environmental Absolutely. standpoint. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, you can see that uh, as, as a result of this pandemic, the, the number of bike lanes that are being thrown in, especially into the older cities. I think uh, mm-hmm. that Hildegard, the mayor of Paris, has vowed to put an additional 650 kilometers of bike lanes in the city of, in the city of Paris. Yeah. So that I mean, it's amazing. I was just the New York Times just had a profile on the changing of Manhattan and how it evolved. Yeah. How they took these beautiful spaces and 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 made way for the car, and now there's a chance for them to remove the car aspect. And it's similar if you if you look at the the history of these crises. In the '70s, there was a a fuel crisis. I don't know. I don't know how old you are, but I was around then. Uh, that's when I started working in bike shops, and there was this amazing bike boom. Everybody wanted a bike. Everybody wanted a bike. And at that point, there was also talk about the car and petroleum, and you know, we we got to rethink it. Well, the only country that did anything about it was Holland. Everybody else reverted back to the car. And look at—I don't know if you've been to Holland, but if you I look haven't. at the. And what they what they have done and what how they have treated the bike with respect and and the the amount of people who use the bike for transport it's amazing and I think this time around it's got potential for a number of reasons uh, number one the bikes that people are rushing out and buying are actually not crap <laughs> the stuff you bought yeah. in the nineteen seventies I mean they were just basic ten speeds where you had to lean down to shift on the down they weren't comfortable bikes. Now you can go right. in and spend a thousand bucks and get a you know a really nice mountain yeah. bike or a nice nice gravel bike. So that's number one. And number two is all the cities now have people who have been thinking about this. Mm-hmm. They haven't been able to implement it, but within the planning departments, I know I have a, a young nephew that's in. He's in the wrong part of the world because. They can't go forward, but the whole idea of cycling and walking and pedestrian and transportation, it's a huge issue for city planners. Mm-hmm. And now every city's got these people who are, are ready and well-studied on the concept. So I think that's got a much better chance to, to grab, especially in the city centers. I think you're right. You know, it's, I worked in New York. I basically lived there three or four days a week for a few years. And uh, we, it was funny. And it wasn't even e-bikes. You would see like the delivery people riding like modified ten speeds with like lawnmower engines on them and stuff like oh, that yeah, to, the get old a, to get the wheel going. But oh, uh, yeah. but it's I always, as an avid cyclist, it used I I did never brought a bike to New York just because it scared the crap out of me <laughs> to ride through Manhattan. Frankly, um, I think there's I mean a there's a skill set involved there, but b it's just such chaos. And the the thought of them mm-hmm. being able to make that more bike friendly so more people could access it that way, especially, I mean, New York in particular, they've been, even before the pandemic, they were doing work on the, on the subway going over to Brooklyn and stuff to be able to open that up so that people could ride. It's so much better, not just for, for people's health and the environment, but for the city and the vibe of the city, you know, where it's just not constant gridlock all the time. Totally. Totally. Well, the thing, one of the things that Paris is doing, what I thought was quite interesting because they realized that the metro is going to be an area that people are not as comfortable going into for quite some time. Mm-hmm. 
But if you look at a metro map, I mean, you'll have the line seven or the 12 or whatever. And they're building bike routes to mimic the routes of the metro. So if oh, you're wow. used to riding the seven, you can jump out of your, of your apartment and find a bike route that will follow along the line of the seven, which I thought was brilliant because people in that, in that town are so used to that type of transportation. Maybe they don't want to go down yeah. into the, dun the dungeon anymore and uh, to have that access and, and still be able to get around. I think I thought that was brilliant myself. That is brilliant. Changing gears a little bit here, no pun intended. Uh, how, what is your role at the company still? Are you still super involved in everything? And how has your role changed over the years? Well, the biggest is that uh, now, now I'm involved in every aspect, but I don't have to to get deeply involved because we have this incredible team in place. Like, you know, you've met Lacey, Lacey's communications. Oh yeah. She's brilliant at it. Yeah. And she's involved in the, the marketing department. So every other week we have a marketing call and we have in marketing, we have, uh, Caleb who's over in Wellington, New Zealand, Eddie's in Nelson, BC, Lacey's in Bellingham, Jake's in Vancouver. I'm wherever I'm at. So, you're involved in that. And then there's a product call. And we have engineers. We've got people up in D.C. We've got people down in the USA. And so it's, a, it's kind of a group setup. They're in charge of that. And both Jake and I, are, they always refer to ownership. Mostly it, it's like when they want to spend money. <laughs> hey, we, we, can, we can do this. What do you think? It's like, well, Jake and I better talk about that. And see, and see what's possible. So, so I, I, yeah. that's probably the biggest change. When we were, you know, when we were starting out, we were unloading containers, we were invoicing, uh, we were calling. And of course, as it evolves and you get more people to to, to help, then you you get to back away a little bit more and kind of look at the overall. I'm quite involved with the European operation. I moved the family over there at a point and. And I, I do spend quite a bit of time there. So, you know, you see Europe from a different point of view. You see the Canadian market from a dis different point of view. It's kind of nice. You get to step back a little bit and to, get, to give a different perspective because the, within the group, they're very intense and they're very focused. But if you have more of an idea of, of you know, how the different elements are working, I think you can give them valid feedback and, and guidance more than anything else. So that's, that's the big difference. It's the, the, young, the young and the... Uh, Jake and I can't ride the way we used to, whereas somebody like Ian can, and we have all these young athletes that can't. So the, the testing, our testing and our perspective from a riding point of view is a little antiquated. You know, we still both ride mm -hmm. a lot and we love it, but you need to have the, those different elements in, in place to progress. Otherwise, you just become like an old Bridgestone. Remember that the Bridgestone brand? It's, it just kind of stopped. And oh, yeah. It stopped. And that's fine. But yeah. that's not Kona. Kona, we like to we like to compete with the big the big group. I think from a yeah. an engineering and technology point of view, I mean, some of those companies have so many engineers and so much resources, you can't quite go there. But we're I think we're in the game in in most every oh, area that we are involved in, and we're talking about billion dollar year companies, and we're considerably smaller than that. And I think the fact that we do go into these different categories instead of saying we're just going to be a mountain bike company you know, and say, hey, we can make a super cool touring bike or what is this Libre, this you know exploring bike and 
you know, to be able to do all of that and, and stay competitive against uh, these mega companies, I'm, I'm quite proud of that. I think the team does an, an amazing job. You and Jake have been partners for a long time. Ever. Yeah. What? <laughs> you say forever? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What is it like to work with someone so closely and be so close to someone for so long? I mean, is, is it hard? Is it, no. do you guys ever have like blowouts or, or nope. it's just been easy or? Nope. Nope. We, wow. just, we established in the beginning that if we both didn't agree with it, it wouldn't happen. So that makes it really, okay. that makes it really and simple. So yeah, I mean, if, if it's amazing if it's, being able to, to if stay there's something with that, that's that I great. Want, if I want to do and Jacob said, I'm not comfortable with that, we just go on to the next thing because there's plenty of other things to do. So no, it's, it's been, it's been pretty amazing. Pretty, it lasted longer than my marriage. So there you go. I always tell Jake, you lasted longer than the marriage. We we met in. Uh, I moved to, to Canada in 1983, so that's a long time ago. And we met yeah. in a bike shop. I I started in bike shops in '75. Both of us, you know, have the same kind of history, bike shop guys. And we first kind of met through music. I would I had I was running a shop, and he had an office there. And I would start putting on uh, like Doc Watson and you know some more more acoustic bluegrass stuff, and that's kind of how we were like, hey, hey, we have similar taste in music, and from there it just took off. And, oh wow! Yeah, it's been it's been a it's been a wonderful that's journey. That's so cool. Yeah, no, he's a wonderful man. It's interesting that that you say that about music because in talking to Ian, um, I, I'm really passionate about music, and I, I work with a lot of musicians. Um, my dad's a musician. Actually, my dad's a musician who owned a bike shop. And uh, kind of grew up in both worlds. And while I have no musical ability, um, I do love music. And one thing that I've noticed in talking to people at Kona is that there's a through line of music involved in the company. Ian was telling me uh, yesterday or the other day when we spoke that every bike that he works on and every, like his inspiration from it comes from music. They all have their own playlist, which I think is, <laughs> is really interesting. Yeah. So he was building bikes for the photo shoot. He was listening to, I can't even remember. And he's just down there and he was just totally focused. And I was just like, wow, wow, what's that? And he said, no, you've got to listen to this. So yeah, it, it, it is. I mean, it's fundamental. When, when I go out on my bike rides early in the morning here, uh, I'm listening to my tunes. And it, cha it actually changes exactly how, you're, how you see everything. You've got that, that, back, oh, for sure. that background and it, you know, it gets your energy in a certain way or gets your mind moving in a certain way. Yeah. And no, I mean, that is one of the essentials of life, in, in my opinion. We actually have a, a house band at Coney, USA. They call themselves Cousin, Cousin Marvin. Oh, really? Oh, we've got a full setup down in the warehouse. They have a practice facility. And two of two. No way. Jordan and Joe are both guitarists. And they're, they're, it's their band. And yeah, so when, whenever we have any kind of gatherings, we always make Cousin Marvin play. A lot of the people in the company strum guitars and whatnot. I, I'm the same. I play mandolin a little bit, but I'm lame. I'm not very good at it all. But there are a number of very talented musicians with, within the company. And yeah, I think you're right about that. It's pretty central. What are you listening to right now? What, what's getting you excited? Uh, well, you know, I'm, I'm kind of stuck a little bit. John Bryan died, and I was always a fan, so I've been, yes. I've been listening. To, to that quite a bit 
I'm an old deadhead. I hate to admit it, but I, I, I'm in, still inspired. There's no shame there at all. Are you kidding me? I'm still, still inspired by some dead. And, and then I've got, I put my, my, uh, my iPod on shuffle most of the time. My girlfriend is European. She's, uh, so she's introduced me to an amazingly different uh, style of music, French music, yeah, international music. So I've got that all blended in. Sophie Hunger is a, I'm a huge fan of Sophie Hunger. She's a, a Swiss woman living in Berlin that she does stuff in German and French and English. Uh, there's so much. It's just always a pleasure to, to hit that shuffle mode too. And it's funny, I saw a little cartoon once and it was like, here's a person that cannot enjoy music without knowing who it is. <laughs> and I laugh every time I hear it because I'm on the bike and all of a sudden this tune comes in and it's fantastic. <laughs> and, and you're riding, right? And you want to know who it is, yep. and you just say, "Shut up and enjoy it." You know, it doesn't matter who it is. <laughs> but I always refer back to that cartoon that made me laugh. That's awesome. see. I think I'm that. Like my brain is like, I need to know who this is. And I was actually just gonna to add in, like, I got an Apple Watch for Christmas a couple of years ago, and, and kind of reviled it. Like, I, I I feel connected enough as it is. But the only thing about it that I really love is that I can look and see who's playing oh, when I'm riding my bike without like watch? fishing my phone out. Oh, I might have to get yeah, one. Yeah, because if, if I fish the phone out, then it's like this whole other rabbit hole of like, oh, like so-and-so texted or oh, an email. Like, and you're uh, like, oh, and like your head's just out of it. But I can just glance at my watch and I'm like, oh, okay, cool. And keep going. Like that's money in the bank for me. That I was like, this is great. So I actually wear it when I ride. But um, I just, I make it so that it doesn't receive texts or phone calls just because, I don't know. I get a lot of them and then suddenly you're not really riding anymore. Exactly, exactly. So you're from the States, but you lived in Canada, and then you moved to Hawaii. Grew, well, what brought you there? I don't live here. I grew up in St. Louis. I moved to Vancouver in 83. Um, started going to Hawaii probably yeah, right around 85, 86. First time over, I came over with a buddy, and we loaded up some bikes, and we toured the big island. And and then Maui became the spot. Once I had kids, we'd come over all the time. After the financial collapse of 08, I was able to grab a condo cheap. And I've mostly been using it as a place for people from Kona to, to kind of hang out. I don't live here. This is the longest I've ever been. Oh, gotcha. I, I didn't know if you were like part-time in each spot. or No, my girlfriend gotcha. lives. She's a, she's a researcher at a university in Paris. So my... The last seven years, I've been more in on that part of the world. And uh, eventually, I'd like to spend more time here. I mean, that's for sure. I got a beautiful pad now. And so I didn't, you know, a local neighborhood and I've got the paddle boards. I got everything. So as time goes on, the, the plan is to spend more time on the islands. So you've been in the, the cycling industry for a long time, yeah. um, longer than than a lot, you know, a lot of people as as a major player in the cycling industry. What about the culture or the business of cycling do you, has surprised you the most over the years? Well, I mean, I, I you should read the book about Schwinn. It's, it's called uh, no, no Hands, I believe. Kind of watch that evolution of, a, of the bike business being pretty basic. You know, it's kind of almost a kid's bike. The Europeans controlled the racing aspect of it. Uh, USA Chicago was one of the biggest producers of bikes in the world at that time. 
And I guess the thing that's been most interesting or surprising is the global aspect of it. When, when, when we started, the bikes were coming from you know, the UK, they were coming from Italy, they were coming from France, uh, they were being produced in the United States. And then that all kind of disappeared and everything initially went to Japan and then from Japan it went to Taiwan and then from Taiwan and it, it kind of ran away and I thought it was a little sad to see it, the whole manufacturing element kind of gutted and going to these, these huge corporations. So I, I think the globalization of the industry was probably the, one of the biggest changes that we saw. And I'm not saying it's bad, but that is what happened. And and it's a bit of a shame when we were starting out. I mean, we knew people who built bikes. We knew frame builders. We knew people. We used to, when we first started, we were we were bringing in, we, we had a frame builder called Paul Brody. He was working with us. We were dealing, we were the first to, we were selling the Merlin bikes. And we were, we were putting them together. We were getting components from from Asia and you know, Jake and Joe and I would sit up all night, you know, sorting out cables and and putting together bikes and you know that was kind of that was kind of fun and interesting and it, it could have had that could have had some legs in the long run, but it it got gutted somehow. So that was a that was a bit of a shame. I mean, there's there's a revival now. There are people building Thai bikes and you know, there is a bit of manufacturing, but compared to what it was. Europe retained it a bit because they were really proactive with tariffs. They, you can't bring bikes in from China even now from into to Europe. So they, I mean, they they put up barricades to protect what's left of their industries. So I guess that's the the one thing that I would have would have liked to seen differently. That the, the whole manufacturing of bikes and the innovation of bikes, of course. Now you can put a bike out and say designed in Marin or, or whatever, right? But it's not, it's not, it's not, not quite, that's, that's not Apple's quite thing. The same. Designed it's, in California, designed by Apple in California. Designed in California, <laughs> exactly. And it's true. I mean, we design the stuff, but not without the help of the engineers that are in the other factories, of, of course. But if you had your own factory, and in fact, we tried to do that when we first started out, Joe Murray. He was, because uh, we were working with Paul Brody at the time, and we had a, a paint booth, and we had a, a frame shop, and, and Joe put together his, his own little workshop and frame shop to develop prototypes. And, but that all, it, it, didn't, it didn't last. It kind of all left. So that, if I would have seen a, if I could have changed things in, in some way, I would have liked to have seen a bit more of a, an industry locally or within the United States. Of all the things that Kona's made, and you've made some, I mean, I don't think there's any denying, you've made some iconic bikes. Yes, we have. What's your favorite one of all of them? No, oh, that's really, really difficult, and it's almost embarrassing to tell you what <laughs> it is. I know, pick your favorite child. Yeah, I'll tell you what it is, because it's the one I have the most of, and it's the Humu. I have I, I have probably a dozen Humus. It's the, the old cruiser. Wow. I have, I have them with roll-off hubs. I have tight, I have titanium. We don't even sell it right now. We do it kind of a every once in a while, we make it. But I'll send okay. you, I'll send you a photo of mine. It was a, we've been making it for a long, long time, and it's it's like the unit. In fact, we're now talking about an SE, 
because every couple of years we'll put it back out and just do a limited run. Yeah. And the product group wow. came through and they want to they want to change the geometry to your favorite bike. They want to take the humu and give it <laughs> unit unit geometry. So that's the big debate at the moment. But it was just a single speed. Oh, cru- interesting. It's a single speed cruiser, and we okay. we we built them in in steel. We built them in alloy. We built them in titanium and. I just, it's one of my, it's, it's my favorite. So I, the thought of a titanium single speed cruiser bike is actually kind of amazing. I'm kind of excited about that. I'm going to find one. Check it out. I'll send you my photo. Please do. Yeah. We'll wind this up. Um, and this is a little bit of an obvious question and I apologize, but what do you see as the future for Kona? Like it's been a long and, and wild ride and obviously Kona will keep going, but what do you see? Where do you see Kona in 10 years? Well, to still be in business. That's our, that was our corporate motto. We're still in business. That's what Jake <laughs> and business? I would say. Yeah. We, we are still in business. That's been our motto and that's been our goal is to, to just continue on and evolve with the trends. And, and it's mostly to, to attract the talent that we have to continue to do that. And we've had, yeah. had some amazing people come, come through and stay at Kona over the years and and that's basically where we're at about it is you've got these wonderful people you want to retain them you want to keep them satisfied and challenged and and happy so that's where i'd like to see it in 10 years that it's still there and it's still innovating and people are being paid well and they're having a wonderful life and they have a lifestyle that they enjoy and what more could you ask for that is true that's those are great goals i think you'll I think 10 more years is going to be an easy run for Kona. One of the things that I love about the company um, is that, like I said before, like you're uh, one of the bigger companies, but it has the small company feel to it. You know, like sometimes a company will get big and it's easy to be like, oh, that company, like they're, they're corny. They're, you know, there's no soul to it. There's no message. And Kona's always just had soul, you know, oozing out of it. Or you at know least why it's always felt is? like it has. Uh, you know why that is? Why is that? The people? It's, it's exactly, exactly what I've been talking about. If, if you can get these people in there and, and let them be creative and let them evolve and grow, the, the culture just kind of, again, it, it tends to ooze out. Even though people are totally yeah. dif- different, there's that central common line, and it's the passion for bikes. So you can bring, I've traveled the world over the years because we've sold our bikes everywhere and no matter where you go you can go to the strangest countries and there's a that element is the same you can find somebody in dubai or somebody in south africa or, or somebody in malaysia they love bikes and that commonality you know really brings people together and and uh, yeah so that's that's the beauty of the bike industry we all know the beauty of the bike and that's why we're here. But the beauty of the bike industry is that there's just an incredible variety of people who have the, the, the same idea about what the bike is and the potential of the bike. I think that's a great place to leave this. Thank you so much for doing it. I really appreciate you taking the time. You betcha. It's my pleasure. Talking shit about a pretty sunset Blanket and opinions that I'll probably regret soon
Changed my mind so much I can't even trust it My mind changed me so much I can't even trust myself